I'm Jake Corley. And I'm Mark LaCour. You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil professionals who want to quickly keep their fingers on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. This is episode 98. What's going on, Mark? Oh, Jake, we're getting closer and closer to 100, and we don't have any plans. <laughs> we need to get some plans together. Zero plans um, and zero input. <laughs> yeah, zero input. Now, speaking of zero input, I did get input last week. I actually got quite a bit of input because people said you sounded like you were in a pipe. And we need to let everybody know that that was um, total accident. Jake actually saved uh, that show because he recorded from the wrong microphone. And so he was able to manipulate his computer mic to sound somewhat decent. So yes, we know that it didn't sound good, and we're trying to keep that from happening. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Yeah, it was uh, a little rough, but uh, I think the content of the show was really good. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed that. We wanted to save it, and hopefully, we have a better sounding and more useful podcast this week. Yeah, and uh, Jake, what's happening today? Today is the inauguration of the forty-fifth president of the United States, Donald yeah. Trump. Donald Trump. And I have not paid attention to the news, but I know there's a bunch of um, supposed to be a, a chance of a, a bunch of bad things happen around the inauguration, a bunch of groups protesting and other groups coming to protect uh, the the uh, Donald Trump and his staff and everything. So, you know, hopefully it was a peaceful inauguration because I, I really people, even if you don't agree with the guy's politics, he's the president, right? He's commander in chief. It's done. Um, you know, just get over it. You know, I, I don't ever remember wanting to protest presidents that were elected that I didn't agree with. I mean, I, they're, they're still the president. I found uh, there was a video early on Facebook that was, I, I thought it was just ri ridiculous. Uh, it was uh, some of these protesters that were blocking the walkway for some of the armed services members who were going to actually attend the inauguration. So some of the higher up officers, you know, in their blues and they're completely blocking the walkway and like surrounding these guys and not letting them pass. You know, come on. That, that's so how, disrespectful. That's how you're, you're going to pay your respects there? That, that's just horrible. You know, they're lucky this isn't the 1970s or 80s because I know what would have happened. Yeah. I mean, given they were Air Force guys, so I can see how they're a little bit of a pushover. <laughs> but if they try to try to surround some of our Marines, let's see what happens with that. Yeah, that's funny. Air Force guys. Nothing against the Air Force guys. We love the fly, 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 fly people. <laughs> All right. And so we're on the road this next week. We're going to be at the Mid-Continent Digital Oil Field Conference on uh, January 25th and 26th in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So excited yeah. to meet some of you guys. Yeah, we're all going to be there. All three podcasts could be there. So if you're going, and you better be going, uh, hit us up, figure out some way to get in touch with us, check out the show notes, you can connect with us on Twitter or whatever. We're going to be uh, recording podcasts there. So at the very least, you can watch us record a podcast. Maybe, just maybe, if you have an interesting story to tell, we'll have you come join us on the podcast. Yep. And that trip is made possible by the Oklahoma Energy Resources Board. Uh, their mission is to use the strength of Oklahoma's greatest industry to improve the lives of Oklahomans uh, through education and restoration, and then also by sustaining Oklahoma's energy resources. So we'll put so, links to both of those in the show notes. Yep. And we're also going to be at uh, NAEP in February. We'll be at Geo Convention in Calgary in May. Um, we're going to be at uh, OTC. Uh, in May, we'll be at SPE HSE conference in April, process safety uh, in March. So we're all over the place and we're our, our 2017 is literally filling up and January's not over with yet. So if you'd like uh, Jake and I to bring the, the show, the podcast, or just like have us go show up at your school or uh, convention or uh, you know sales and marketing group or, or whatever, reach out to Jake and I. We'd be happy to share details with you. 
And so now onto our stories. We've got a whole lot of stories. Uh, a lot of the feedback that we keep getting is that we should make the shows a little bit longer. We should jam pack some more value in there. So we're trying to do that with this episode and extend it out. Uh, we have a lot of things happening in the news, uh, especially with the new administration coming in. So the first article uh, for the day is, uh, what is oil and gas going to look like under Trump? And so they kind of go into how uh, Trump is saying he would reconsider a multilateral deal with Iran. Um, if you know Tehran was to forfeit some of its nuclear programs in exchange for relief from the sanctions. Yeah, and there's a lot of moving pieces here. So uh, Trump has made no mystery of his support for the oil and gas industry, which I think is awesome. This is going to be the most oil and gas pro-administration in the history of the U.S. But he also has to work with lawmakers. <laughs> he can't just do it all himself. And so there's going to be some give and take here. And there's some parts and pieces that people don't normally think of. There's some changes to the tax laws that he's looking at, which actually way change the dynamics of how we import and export crude. Um, he's also looking at open up drilling on federal lands, and people are a little bit alarmed at that. Um, but that doesn't mean that people will drill there. It, it just depends on the price of crude. Um, there's some changes uh, proposed and things like the way you, um, the, what the EPA can do, all that's really good because it's going to remove costs from the industry, which means that companies can be profitable in this lower crude price market. So I'm really excited to see what happens. Just understand people, he can't just wave a magic wand. He has to work, uh, him and his, uh, his cabinet have to work together with the houses of Congress to get stuff done. So it's going to take some time. I suspect that a lot of the benefit to the oil and gas industry, Jake, actually won't materialize t- until almost toward the end of his term. Yeah. And like you mentioned, you know, he's talking about opening up federal lands. Uh, I'm also going to put a link to an article for that as well. But the federal government owns in excess of over 600 million acres in Alaska, Utah, and Nevada. Uh, 20, 21% of the production uh, currently comes from federal lands, um, which is slightly less than what it was uh, back in 2010 at 36%. Um, the problem with that is uh, developing these uh, fields will be pretty costly considering there's no existing infrastructure in place. There's those pipelines, there's no roads, there's no skilled workers like we have here in Texas. Um, and like we've talked about, the most of the operators are looking to minimize their risk and are only allocating capital to projects where there's existing infrastructure and a ton of historic production. Yeah, and this is a great article Jake found. It's actually in the Houston Chronicle. Um, and so one of the things they don't mention here is the federal government also owns most of the leases offshore. So a lot of people may not know this, but the federal government, the U.S. federal government, is the most this is the largest, most profitable oil and gas company in the U.S., <laughs> bigger than Exxon or anybody else. They make most of the money. So that money goes into the government's uh, checking account, and then they can use it to spend on other things. Um, so it's going to be real interesting to see um, as they open up these lands, as they get approval, what's going to happen. Because, Jake, what I suspect is going to happen is most of the established companies are going to look at this as a higher-risk situation and not want to get in on this because you're right, the infrastructure's not there. I suspect some smaller companies could see a lot of opportunity here and to go capture a bunch of these leases probably for pennies on the dollar to begin with, and it might start an actual another land rush, not in 2017 or 2018. I'm thinking more like 2019 or 2020. Like I said, right around the end of, of Trump's administration. So we'll keep an eye on this. It's going to be whatever, it's, whatever happens to this, it's going to be good for us and good for the U.S. economy. So while we're on the topic of politics, uh, this week the Texas House and Senate have disagreed on how to fund the Railroad Commission. So if you're not familiar with what the Railroad Commission is, it's the regulatory body that's going to be presiding over uh, oil and gas here in Texas. So the House is proposing that they boost funds by 20% to $221.4 million over the next four years, while the Senate is proposing the opposite. So slashing it by nearly 8% to $162.7 million dollars. And they're primarily funded through uh, drilling permits. But as you can imagine, uh, over the last couple of years, they're just kind of hemorrhaging cash. 
Yeah, and so the the other thing that's not talked about in this article is the Railroad Commission does more than issue drilling permits. They also are tasked with tracking all of the uh, um, capped and shut down wells out there, even the wells that that are drilled but aren't completed yet. Um, And so that's a real important thing for government to do because these older wells have a bigger chance of impacting the environment in a negative way. So somebody needs to monitor them. And so that's in their wheelhouse. And so it's real important the Railroad Commission, regardless of where it gets its funding, keeps its ability to stay on top of all the wells that are drilled in Texas. Um, It's kind of hard to figure out which side I'm I'm on here. Um, The Railroad Commission has cut a lot of um, um, expenses. They've actually laid off people and they've they've tightened up their belts, but they are running a deficit in their budget. And it's a temporary deficit. You know, as drilling comes back, they'll start making money again. I do think they need to diversify their income. Um, The majority, like you said, Jake, the majority of their income comes from drilling permits. and, And that means that when the price of crude tanks, their revenue tanks. So I'm open for them diversifying their income. Not quite sure this is the right way, but I know this much. Our our government, as far as state governments go, does a really good job of making good business decisions for a government. So I'm sure they'll figure this thing out. And, and you know, like I said, we just need to keep an eye on this and see where this thing's going. And if anybody who works at the Railroad Commission listens, let us know. Write it right in. Let us know what you guys think. Do you need yeah, the money or not? <laughs> yeah, and we, and we would love to actually hear your input on our show. If you work for the Railroad Commission, you're like our are, you know, one of the people that we really want to make sure we're putting out good content. So yeah, uh, reach out to us. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know about this budget issue. Do we call it right or do we get something wrong? So let's move on to stuff outside of the U.S. So oil and gas sales to the Syrian regime are now ISIS's largest source of funds. So the Wall Street Journal reports that the Assad regime, despite the fact that they're publicly kind of detesting ISIS, is directly supporting them through the purchase of oil and gas. And so ISIS is, you know, pocketing about a million dollars a day just from sales to Syria. Yeah, it's, um, sorry for that, folks. I accidentally clicked on the, the link that Jake sent me and it started playing the video. Um, but but anyway, so the the problem with this is black market oil. Yeah, there's a bunch of oil that's in production that, that disappears, and especially in the Middle East. Um, and the problem that it doesn't really disappear, it's sold on the black market. And that black market money is what's used to form all these radical terrorist groups like ISIS. And so uh, the the real longer term solution of this, because you're not going to ever stop this black market oil from being put on the market. The real longer term solution is the nations that are buying this to come to agreement to quit buying black market oil. Once you dry up the market for that, it'll quit being put on the market and a lot of the funds for these terrorist groups will just disappear. Yeah, one of the factors is that uh, Russia and Iran have reduced their deliveries of cheap gas and oil to the Syrian government. Obviously, it's put a lot of strain on them to find some kind of replacement. So what what, what could Trump do to fix this? Yeah, that's it. So like I said, I, I always want to go to the, the, the money part of a problem because the money part is the part where you can make the biggest impact with the least amount of effort. If we can figure out which countries are buying this black market at all and stop them, and I don't mean like from a physically stop them, but figure out why they're buying it. Is there some type of uh, tax incentive we can help them with? Do they need a- another supply of cheap crude? Well, we got a ton of cheap crude we can sell them, you know, and and remove that market. Then the the, the majority of the funds for these radical uh, groups will disappear. The other source of funds that they don't talk about here is they actually, um, they, uh, prioritize their local populations. So they'll go into a village and they'll make everybody there pay them whatever. Um, and and that's one of those things that you're not going to ever dry up until the people in these areas agree to stop paying that type of money. Um, that's a tough call because it's easy for me to sit here in Sugarland, Texas and talk about that. Whereas it'd be different if I'm in Syria and somebody kidnapped my children and they wanted 20 bucks to get them back. So I, I get it, right? Um, but that's, that's, 
in order to, and I've been saying this for a long time, in order to get rid of these radical groups, fighting them head on helps, right? It helps keeping them from expanding and growing, but we need to figure out the reasons. Um, one is money. We need to stop the flow of money. Another one is what's in the mindset of the people there that make them want to join these groups? You know, how can we go in and help them? And and I know what the answer to that is too. They're they're living in a worn toward world with in poverty, with with no modern amenities whatsoever, no electricity, no running water, whatever. And they get exposed to ISIS where they actually get paid. A lot of people don't know this, but ISIS pays its soldiers. And so they 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 now see themselves as a member of a group, right? Which always feels good if you're human. You're now making money. There's some safety in numbers and and they really don't care what side they're on. So if, if we can figure that part out and, and kind of interrupt that at the same time, dry up the source of revenue, we can make all this stuff disappear. And I think that's one way to fix the problem. And the other way to fix the problem is that we have uh, General James Mad Dog Mattis as Secretary of Defense, and I don't think ISIS is going to stand a chance in the next couple of years. No, no. <laughs> and, you know, it's really hard for me not to just jump all gung-ho into this. Um, but, yeah, he he is going to take the the manual part of fixing this and do it right. And it's, and it's, you know, he's got the support of Congress, which is awesome. That's the support of the current administration. Um, we've had other people in the past in places of power that wanted to fix this thing right, but they weren't allowed to. This is going to be different. He's, uh, he's going to let loose the dogs of war. <laughs> so uh, up next is the uh, Slumberjay chief is saying that drilling recovery is on its way in all markets. Yeah, and it's interesting. I don't know if they referenced this in this article, but I just actually listened to their call, which um, was just a couple of days ago. And their CEO um, is talking about taking Slumberjay's business and getting rid of a lot of the offshore part that they do. Think about that, Jake. That's been their bread and butter forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, that just confirms what we said in our, pred- our, our predictions for 2017 is that land rules. Um, and if Slumberjay is basically saying land rules, and I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. Um, but Slumberjay is also looking at growth. Now, Slumberjay says that 2017 things are going to start pick up, but it's really going to be 2018 to 2020 when it really takes off. And the thing is, Slumberjay is still growing, Jake. Um, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see. They, they've gotten so big as far as the size of a service company um, that they're going to have more scope and more reach and more research and development dollars, and they're going to be able to leverage their vendors more. Um, they may not be, you may not be able to catch up with them. Halliburton tried, right, with the Baker Hughes merger, and that fell through. Um, the whole um, GE Baker Hughes is a different approach uh, than trying to be big. Um, they're trying to be smart. Um, I, I suspect Slumberjay is getting ready to run away and, and nobody's going to be able to catch up with them. Um, there, and you know, I love Slumberjay. I'm right here in Sugarland. Their uh, North America headquarters is literally two miles from my house. Uh, they tend to hire all my interns, um, good people, good company, but it's, um, it's, it's nice to see that they're seeing things pick up and it's also interesting to watch what they're doing with themselves. So I was actually talking, uh, yesterday about this with a former executive of one of the largest service companies. Um, and it, he says this is true, but it's going to take a little while because these operators are still pressing these service companies too hard on price. Um, so eventually, you know, we're going to have more and more service companies filing bankruptcy like we've already seen. Um, you know, you just can't keep putting your vendors out of business. And these operators have to look for more ways to become efficient um, and, and new ways to save money. Yeah, and, and that we've talked about that before. That is some of the cost savings that they've realized in the last two years. Is It's not true cost savings. They just reduce the margins for the service companies to the point that a lot of the service companies will take the job at a break-even price just to keep their people working and make no money on it. 
so that's part of it. It's um, but I think the the leverage that the operators had for these last two years is getting ready to rapidly disappear. And like, a, you know, if you listen to the show, you know, I've said this a hundred times. So I think at the end of this year, it's going to be the opposite. The service companies are going to have all the leverage because there's not going to be enough parts and people and pumps and whatever to go around. And so it's going to go back to where we, we're in a place of inflation for the service companies. That's a, that kind of check and balance is um, has always been in place. It's going to be interesting interesting to see as technology comes in. You know, can these service companies actually do the same work at a lower price and keep the same margins? And I, I think the answer to that's going to be yes. We, we, we kind of talked about that as well. And he said, you know, some of these uh, these operators are complaining. They're like, you know, we're getting not the best crews and not the best equipment and stuff. And it's like, well, what do you expect? You're paying absolute bottom dollar. Do you think we're going to send out, you know, the, the most qualified crews and the, and the best equipment? Yeah. And then what happens with that, Jake, because I've seen this happen in, in our industry with a bunch of things, things like um, IT, things like uh, telecommunication services, you know, transport. Eventually, the buyers will force a piece of this industry to become a commodity. Once it becomes a commodity, then everybody competes on price, which means they have no extra money to make sure their service is high quality. I give you a perfect example. One of the Large super majors, I'm not going to say which which one, um, this is probably 10 or 15 years ago, outsourced all their help desk, their internal IT help desk. And it was outsourced to an American company, uh, the old EDS, which later HP bought. And then that was later uh, sold to Verizon Business. Um, and then Verizon Business lost that to an offshore provider. So basically, the super majors help desk was now offshore. Well, Every time that that was outsourced, the price got cheaper and cheaper for the super major. And they were happy, right? They're paying less and less money for the same service until it went offshore. Now, all of a sudden, a senior VP who's working on an $8 billion project, laptop won't boot up, and he has to wait two days to get, get it fixed. How much money did that cost at super major? So eventually, Jake, even though they forced this to become a commodity and they outsourced it and, they get, and it was really, really cheap, the problems that it caused increased the cost of the business. So what did the super major do? They brought it all back in-house again because the problems were not worth the cost savings. And so yeah. you got to be real careful that you don't see the same thing happen here. Um, and 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 I, actually, I know for a fact it's already happening because like you said, you're getting uh, substandard crews, substandard equipment. Things don't show up on time. And when you have a trying to complete a well and that well is worth, you know, $10 million, you know, if you save $2,000, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah. So our next article is, uh, this is right up my alley. So I, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, it's called, it says, uh, real innovation in the oil patch is found in data analytics. Uh, so there's a lot of interest around uh, big data, industrial internet of things, which we've talked about, uh, machine learning, predictive analytics. Um, so it's everything from you know, drilling wells more effectively to responding to RFPs to optimizing operations uh, through in-depth data analysis. Um, go ahead. Yeah, so this is a great article Jake found on oilprice.com. If you don't understand this world, this is a great read, right? Um, because they talk about some of the stuff that we don't ever talk about because Jake and I just assume that everybody knows what's in our heads. Um, but one of, the, one of the basic things they talk about is garbage in, garbage out. And with data, that is so true. If you don't have quality data, you can't do quality analytics on it. And Jake, I see this a lot uh, in our industry with companies' CRM systems. Um, for sales, if you're not in sales, you don't know what CRM is, customer, custom relationship management software. Is that what CRM stands for? Yep. Yeah. And so uh, the real value for CRM, if you have a large sales force, is for upper management for actually looking at doing predictive type of stuff. For the frontline salespeople, it's often a pain in the butt. So because it's a pain in the butt, they just put anything in there. And what happens is all that data they put in there, it's skewed. A lot of it's not good. 
which means that the predictions that the executives are using are not good either. One of the things that we do with our clients, Jake, was when they first engage with us, the first thing I ask them is, do you have a field in your CRM for business unit for the oil and gas companies? And if they say no, that tells me they have no idea what they're doing. Because just because you have Chevron listed, and this guy works for Chevron, it does you no good. That's worthless information unless you know the guy works for Chevron Aviation or Chevron E&P or Chevron Pipeline you know, or, or Chevron Refining. Um, and so um, this is a perfect example. And if you read through this article, it talks about um, what big data is, what's how it actually can drive um, efficiencies, how it can actually drive cost savings. And then it gets into the issues with big data, stuff like uh, the proper way to, to clean data, the proper way to store it, compile it. So really good article. If you want to understand this whole big data analytics, this whole technology uh, uh, increase that's going on in oil and gas, give this thing a read. Yeah. And like, like you said, if it's, it's one of the biggest issues is garbage in and garbage out. Um, it's not only that the data needs to be properly cleaned, but the analysis of the actual data can only happen once the data is compiled from various sources. So in many cases, I've seen this firsthand, you know, this data is on paper, it's in spreadsheets, it's in emails, it's in a variety of antiquated software that's been around for like 30 years. So all of this is essential, um, essentially has to be aggregated into a single database. And this is such a gigantic and a tedious task. Once you think about how many data points these companies are looking at, even a mid-sized operator, it's still, I mean, you're, you're having volumes and pressures and depths and uh, a million other data points, right? So once you're able to actually accomplish that, only once the, uh, only once you are able to accomplish that can you actually make informed decisions at every level. So, go ahead. Right. Yeah, and the other thing I was going to make fun of is really Excel spreadsheets. This industry still uses Excel, Jake. Oh, it's absolutely <laughs> insane. So let me let me walk everybody through a, a scenario. For example, uh, so think if you have a marginal well that goes down for a hole in the casing. Before you drop $100,000 on a workover, you need to make sure the investment makes sense. So what do you need to look at? What is the average production? How does the decline curve look? What is our estimated remaining reserves? What does our lease operating statement look like? How profitable is the actual well? And then will we, when will you break uh, even on this investment? So if you're producing you know, 10 barrels a day, and uh, so 300 barrels a month, you're bringing in roughly 15K of revenue at our current oil prices. So probably eight or $9,000 in profit. So your break even for investment like this is at 11 months. Okay. So now you have to do that entire analysis for every well that you have down and prioritize uh, and see which one it actually makes sense and see, look at your capital and see how, you know, which wells you can actually bring back on, you know? So imagine having to do that type of analysis whenever you're having to compile information from paper, spreadsheets, and email um, every single time. Yeah, Jake, you seem to know a lot about that. Why? <laughs> well, I've been trying to solve this problem for the last three years of my life. So with my previous startup and then with the startup that we're about to launch, we've been working on the the software again. It's called WellHub. Uh, we'll be launching that soon. So that's that's the exact problem that we're looking to, to solve. It's really uh, avoiding the the constant aggregation and compilation into a single database and just having you know one system to uh, completely run their business. Yeah, so we don't really do plugs on the show, but if you're an operator out there and this is of interest to you, you might want to reach out to Jake and get ahead of everybody else. Maybe you can help him uh, with his startup and actually get this tool before anybody else gets it and put you ahead of your competition. Just or saying. If anybody else is just interested, I'd love to talk about this. I could talk about this all day. So Oh, he hit, can talk about it all day. Hit me night. up on, email me or hit me up on LinkedIn and uh, I'll, I'll be glad to chat with you about that. But no, no more about me. So let's jump on to the next thing. So M&A and activity in the Permian is heating up. Okay, so Exxon is doubling down on the Permian with a 6.6 .6 billion, with a B, dollar acquisition. 
That sounds huge, but it's Exxon <laughs> to them. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's, it's it's nothing to them. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, so um, yeah, so they they dumped uh, over six and a half billion dollars um, for some Permian acreage out there, and you know we've all been talking about this. That's gonna be the, what's hot. What's gonna be hot in the future, um, and it's it's just a race to to pick up these assets. Uh, of course, Exxon's sitting on all the cash it has. The first one to make the move, but there's a bunch of other ones going on too, huh, Jake? Yeah, so then Noble Energy has also purchased uh, Clayton Williams Energy for $3.2 billion. Uh, Clayton Williams has, has been one of the, the larger producers, especially here in Texas, uh, for quite some time. So that's a, that's a big move for Noble. So the combined company is going to be the second largest uh, producer in the southern Delaware Basin. Um, it's like 71,000 continuous net acres, I believe. Um, and then after that, we've got WPX Energy has acquired not only one, but two different operators, uh, Panther Energy and Carrier Energy Partners for $775 million. And then Parsley Energy lastly snags up 23,000 net leasehold acres in the uh, Southern Delaware Basin as well for $607 million. And that all happened this week. So there's a lot of activity. Yeah. And that's like Jake said, that is just this week. <laughs> yep. right? So how many other deals are being talked about or being researched right now that we don't know about? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Um, I, you know, we have our ear to the, the, the grindstone in this and there's going to be a lot of uh, acquisitions in this year, 2017 on land. So we, do we have a winner for the offshore bag? Yes, we do. You just can't read it because I didn't hit refresh on Evernote. So <laughs> <laughs> our winner is Brian Marcello. He's with Datchell. He's a field technician. So congratulations, Brian. You have won this awesome Red Wing offshore bag. If you, our audience, want to win one of these awesome Red Wing bags, it's really easy. No purchase necessary. See us official site for rules and details. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast, and you can win. Now, if you actually go check out the Global Oil and Gas, I mean, I'm sorry, the Oil and Gas Global Network Facebook page, you actually can see video of the bag. Uh, Patrick and I have... Uh, uh, done a couple of uh, Facebook live streams um, while we're doing podcasts, and we actually put the bag, pulled the bag out so people can see it. Uh, but it's an awesome bag. Jake, did you get yours yet? Not yet, but I hopefully should have it by uh, hopefully next week. So you can take oh, with me to Oklahoma. We go on our trip. Yeah. 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 So Jake has one in the mail. If you want one in the mail, redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Go throw your information in there, and we pull one lucky winner a week. All right. So now it's our time to uh, brag about Mark's uh, monthly events email. Go check it out. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, it's everything that moves in oil and gas, every type of event. Um, Mark, do you want to talk a lot about that a little bit? Yeah. So um, when I first started Modal Point, I was frustrated because I couldn't find all the events in one place because this industry is um, a bit behind times when it comes to online presence. So I started my own. And so now um, my interns comb the internet, find all the oil and gas events that are worth a darn, put it in one e uh, newsletter, and we email it out once a month. And we could charge for that, but it's free. So you basically follow the link that's in the show notes, sign up for it. We never spam you. Um, and we also, um, like for OTC, we'll actually throw in some free passes to OTC. Uh, we often have events in there that are invitation only, that the the companies reach out to us, go, hey, would you invite your audience to this that are not public? Um, so you get invited to like real insider type of stuff. So take a minute, go sign up for it. Um, you'll find it very useful if you're anywhere near the oil and gas industry. And the rig count for this week, it's a little different than all the other weeks I've been on here because it's down. We're down six uh, rigs for a total of 659. So like I said, first time we've seen a drop since I've been on. So it's been about what, two months? So yeah, that, but that's fine. It's going to drop and it's going to go back up. One of the things that's changed about the rig count, it doesn't tell the story that it did 10 years ago. Um, the rigs now 
on land are so much faster, so much higher horsepower. They can move themselves that one rig can do the work of three or four or five. And there's also specializations in rigs. So the rig that actually punches the vertical may not be the rig that does the horizontal, may not be the rig that does the completion. Um, st it's still a good indicator of activity. Um, but I guarantee you, as we watch this over a long period of time, like over a quarterly period of time, um, that we'll see the trend of these rigs going up here in the U.S. So if you want to connect with uh, not only us, but other listeners, you can go check out our LinkedIn group for the uh, Oil & Gas Global Network. Uh, if you like the show, please leave us a review, uh, hopefully five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, anything that you would like to see out of the show. Because other than, other, if it wasn't for that, it would just be me and Mark talking to each other you know, for about an hour once a week. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, we have a website. So it's uh, oilandgasthisweek.com. It's really easy, oilandgasthisweek.com. All of our shows are on there. Every single way you can subscribe is there. And we're also going to start putting exclusive content just on the website, just on the blog. So it's stuff that won't be on the podcast and it's stuff that won't be available to the public. Um, we're also going to start talking about some of the live events we're going to do. So the thing you do is go to the website. We have an email list. Sign up for the email list. Once again, we're not going to spam you. But this way, anytime anything's published on the website, you get emailed notified first. And speaking of that... We have our first Friday Q&A coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, it's one of our most popular episodes. We'd love to get a question from you. Uh, if you leave us a question, we'll give you a big shout out on the show. And that's also on the website. So go to oilgasthisweek.com, look for Ask a Question, throw your question there and let Jake and I uh, uh, see what you're up to. Well, hopefully you guys enjoy the show and we'll see you guys next week. Yeah, and, and before we get out of here, Jake, we need to make sure that we start grabbing some reviews <laughs> and reading them on the air. We said that last time, but uh, oh Jake yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. So, so I promise you, leave us a review and we'll give you a shout out. Just give us a little bit of time to catch up there. And I think now, Jake, uh, we probably can get out of here. You ready? Sounds good. Yeah. Katie's so, guys. folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. 